Well, good morning again. If you brought your Bibles, how come the second good morning was so anemic, pathetic, and non-existent? <laughs> if you brought your Bibles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, turn to the Gospel of Luke. Gang, we're about to embark on a journey, and by journey, I mean long. Uh, this will be the longest book that I've ever preached um, since I've been in ministry, actually, and it's well worth doing. This is going to be a fascinating journey. I'm going to tell you in a second. I'm going to tell you all morning why we chose the Gospel of Luke. But if you will, I'm going to make some bold promises. If you will do what I say, which is something I got from God, so think of it as doing what he says on this journey, you're going to get a ton out of this book. I'm going to start a little bit different than I normally do when I, when I preach through a book, and we've got to go over some foundational things because of the four Gospels, this was written from a completely different perspective for a completely different reason. There's some foundational things. If you get them, it's going to really help you on this journey. Let me uh, put it this way. Anybody, raise your hand if you ever go camping or backpacking. Do we have, man, we got an outdoorsy group. I scored with that one. Usually no hands in anything that I do. Well, <clears throat> if you've ever, has anybody ever been on a backpacking trip where you go and you get to the, you know, you're hiking like 22 miles, like if you're me, 30, 40 miles first day, and you get to the site where you're going to break camp and everything, and you realize you forgot something extremely crucial. Anybody ever forget an important thing when you went camping? Anybody? Thank you, because I didn't want to be alone. You know, like your backpack, <laughs> like, like everything. Or how about this? Maybe if you can't relate to that. You ever go on a big vacation, and you pack, and then you realize you have no toothbrush, you have no, you know, underwear, no... No clothes, it's an empty suitcase. Anybody, I mean, so you go there and listen, the trip or especially something like backpacking or camping, it's not going to be as good if you didn't bring essentials, right? Especially when you're out in the middle of the woods and you don't have things like biodegradable toilet paper. Do I need to go on? Are you getting this? Well, that's the way that it is when we undertake something like Luke. This one, um, far more than a lot of the books that I've studied, if you don't lay down the right foundation, you don't get this stuff right, it's actually going to affect the trip, affect the journey. And this is a, now you can pack along the way, and I will, you know, it's not like you can't get ready in weeks coming ahead, but I want you guys to make a commitment to really try and make it to as many of the weekends, many of the Sundays as you can for this series. It's just a short-term commitment, about a year and a half. Can you do that? Should take us about that long. <clears throat> Maybe a little bit longer because at impact will break. You know, this is a through-the-book series, and we'll break every now and then for topical series that the Lord puts on my heart that we need to do. But pretty much, we're going to go through books of the Bible as a church, and this is going to be a long but very, very good journey. By show of hands, I need you guys to really participate in this. I want to know what we're starting out with. How many of you ever had doubts about Christianity? No one? <laughs> okay, everyone, pretty much. And, but that wasn't actually over here. We have more doubters over here, so I guess I'll, I'll lean over here a little bit. It, and over here, we don't have quite as many. So let me add some questions to it, if hands and go. You don't have to raise your hand, but if it's not Christianity, let me tell you what I'm talking about. Your own salvation. Uh, the person of Christ. Is there really a devil? What's heaven like? Is there even a heaven? Is there a hell? If you've ever had doubts like this, it's going to be a great series for you. It's going to be great. And by the way, if you're sitting there going, I never had doubts. All right, Captain Faith, if that's you then you're better than, I guess, Abraham. I listed a bunch of people that actually talk about their doubts or have shown it in a, in a way in Scripture. David, many times in the Psalms you can see that David had doubts. Peter, <laughs> some pretty big doubts. He denied Christ three times. 
Jeremiah had doubts. John had doubts. Martha had doubts. Mary, Martha's sister, had doubts. John the Baptist had doubts. Remember when John the Baptist had doubts? He's in prison. Uh, Herod put him in prison, and he sends messengers, some of his disciples, to go to Jesus' disciples and ask, did I blow it? Are you really him? How's that for doubts? I mean, he's the forerunner, the precursor. We're going to be studying him in weeks ahead, and he had doubts. They all experienced doubt on their faith journey, but it, listen, doubts aren't bad. And God is not up there going, listen, if you doubt, then you're on the B team. Because I want somebody that doesn't doubt. Doubts are good if they drive you in deeper to get the questions answered. God's not afraid of questions. He's not up there going, you know, I got these covered. But if they ask this, oh, I don't know what to do for these questions. He's not panicking. He's got an answer for everything. He'd rather, when you doubt and you have questions, you ask. That you ask. So doubts are good if it drives you to the Lord it can cause your faith to soar. There's a big difference, though, in the result of doubting leprechauns and doubting Scripture, right? The investigation of leprechauns, there's still a couple little kids here, so I'll be careful. The investigation of leprechauns probably bring disappointment, especially if you're looking for that pot of gold. Did anybody find that? In this economy, I would like to know if you found that. I could use it. But the investigation of Jesus Christ and the things in the Bible will bring reward, will bolster your faith, will strengthen your faith. Now, <clears throat> if you have doubts, Luke is for you. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 4, because it kind of gives you the purpose of the book. He's writing to an audience of one, but it really extrapolates into more than that, and I'll explain that later. But look at verse 4. It says, that you, let's think of you as all you guys, all of us together. This is written that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So how's that for a great reason to study this book? Are you with me? This was written, Luke was written that you might have certainty about what you've been taught. Not that you have to go through everything going, you know, I believe why, well, my parents believed. I'm, I was born in a Christian country. That's not true anymore, but you know, I was born into a Christian family, so I just, I believe. Why do you believe? I'm not sure. I'm just, you know, hanging out for dear life. I hope it's there. Hope there's a God. Hope Jesus is real. Well, this is written so you could go beyond that hope, that you might have. And I love this. I love Luke because it's, he, he's flat out with it. I had doubts. The one he wrote to, I had doubts. This is written to remove those doubts. doesn't mean you'll never doubt again, but it'll solidify your faith. So, if you miss Sundays on this, and I know sometimes you do, I'm allowing two vacations for the next year and a half for all of you. And one bad hair day. But if you do miss, seriously, again, get the podcast when you miss. Keep up with this because the reward at the end is going to be fantastic. In fact, I'll make this promise. And some of you, if you read my blog, both of you know that I've been saying this a lot. So everybody look, at, look up here. Look at me. I love this saying. I, I love it. I've, it's, God's just been pounding it home all week. And I really believe this, gang. This will be the best year of your life if it's the best year of your life spiritually. Do you get that? Do you understand that? This will be the best year of your life. And, it, and who doesn't want that? Now, here's the scary thing about that. Most people I know when you ask about this, you want it to be the best year of your life? Yes. Did you know if it's the best year of your life spiritually, it could be the best year of your life? Yeah. So what do you need to do to make it the best year of your life spiritually? Spend more time with God? Yeah. I mean, I've talked to some people about this, and they go, well, I don't really have time now. I'm thinking about getting some things in order in a few months. And well, if you wait, then this won't be the best year of your life. There's no way as a believer it's going to be the best year of your life if it's not the best year spiritually. 
But the other way is absolutely true. If it's the best year spiritually, it absolutely will be the best year of your life. Not can, will be the best year of your life. So what I want to cover this morning is a little bit different. Something I only do at the beginning. I'm going to look at some critical questions. Who's the human author? Some of you are going, oh, good Lord, it's, look, it's Luke. But I want to find out how we really know that, not just because somebody wrote it on the page. Who's the audience, primary and secondary? How was it written and why was it written? Okay, so let's dive in. Why don't you stand in honor of God's word and I'll read this first part for you. <clears throat> Verse 1, inasmuch, there's a word we use every day, huh? Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So here's what Luke is saying right at first. A lot of people have already written Gospels. So Matthew and Mark and probably John were already done, plus others that maybe we don't have. So why write another one? He's going to say that. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Okay, so eyewitnesses, he's talking about the disciples that wrote them, that were actually there. It seemed good to me also, so for some reason, he's saying there a lot of stuff have been written, but it seemed good to me to add one more. Why? Because it's different, gang. Having followed all the things closely for some time, so he's, he's been tracking this, he's been studying, he's like a journalist, to write a different kind of account, an orderly, that doesn't mean the other accounts are disorderly, I'm going to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, that tells you who it was written to, and that's important. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So, Theophilus either had doubts or he's a brand new Christian and wants to have certainty. So, Luke said, I'm doing this for you that you may have certainty. You guys can be seated. All right, gang, I'm going to go pretty fast today so we can get all this in. Number one, who's the me in that verse? It seemed beneficial for me to write down an account. Who is that? And some of you are going, um, should we tell them? Should somebody help Pastor Rob out? What kind of Bible does he have? See, on my Bible, it's written at the top of every page. When I read Luke, there it is, Luke. Turn the page, there it is again, Luke. By the way, that's a pet peeve of mine. Reading's supposed to be good for you. How many of you like to read? You like to read? Reading makes you smarter. Let me see your hands again. I want to see the smart people. (laughs) Who doesn't like to read? Okay, that's the other group. (laughs) Reading is supposed to make you smarter. But but for those of you in the other group, I'll defend you. If reading makes you smarter, then why do they have every book I ever have read in my entire life puts the title of the book on every page, right? I mean, what do they think about us as readers? That we're reading a lot. Who reads and forgets what they're reading? Have you ever forgotten what you're reading in the middle of a book? Please don't raise your hand if you have. It's only like you're going along reading, you're going, oh, yeah, yeah, there it is. <laughs> I remember when reading. Or they put it on the front cover and you turn back, oh, I just want to remember what I was reading. And so this is, this is not the only reason. This is not all I want you to have that you look at this and go, I know it's Luke because it says Luke. I want you to know why ancient theologians and scholars put Luke on here. Even if he were to claim it, which he doesn't, Luke doesn't claim authorship anywhere on any of the pages of Luke. It's the longest gospel, and nowhere does he say, I, Luke, wrote this, or sincerely, Luke, in this letter. But we know it's him. So, let's figure out how. What do you think, by the way, the chances are, because this is, it's an account, but it's a letter, right? Right? Basically, it's a letter to Theophilus. So what do you think the chances are that Luke forgot to sign his name accidentally? 
Anybody think maybe that's it? Hands? Are you guys scared to raise your hands with me? Seems like a bait and switch, doesn't it? There's zero chance, gang. There's zero chance that he forgot to. This literally probably took him years to write. Probably took him a couple years to write this, as we'll see in a bit. <clears throat> I don't think it's simply slipped his mind to put his name. So there's a reason, and a very good reason, a very noble reason, why Luke didn't put his name. Why do you think? He did write it. But that's a good deal. He did write it, and we'll show you beyond a doubt, so, you won't, so you'll have certainty that he did write it. But why would he not put his name? <clears throat> what if you were writing something about someone else, and you really wanted to, to focus the attention on them? Man, I love the reason why his name's not on there. He's humble. <laughs> that's all it is. He's humble. He's not interested in writing a New Roman Times bestseller, you know, by Luke, with, in little tiny writing, the Bible. He's interested in putting forward Jesus. It's as simple as that. There's a couple of reasons beyond that why we know that it was Luke and why it's important to know. Number one, both Luke and Acts are written by the same author. It's actually a prequel and a sequel without Jar Jar Binks. So it's actually, they're both good on this one. And um, they're both historical biographies. Luke telling the biography of Jesus and Acts telling the biography of Jesus' people or the church. And what we see in the book of Acts is that Luke is clearly the author of Acts. Now, again, in the book of Acts, just like Luke, he doesn't put his name. Again, it's to lift up the church, the body of Christ, and how it started and put the focus on that, not the focus on that it was Luke. So how do we know it was Luke? Well, we know he's a traveling companion and close, close, beloved friend of the Apostle Paul. And there are occasions in Acts where he says, and we went here. And we went there, and we said this, and Paul said that, and together we, well, who's the we in there? It's Paul and Luke. <clears throat> so he wrote Acts, and the same person who wrote Acts wrote Luke. They worked together as one historical book. But just because we know he wrote Acts, how does that mean he wrote Luke? It's going to be a little bit more classroom-like today. I can see in some of your faces, you're like, I went to school all week, especially the kids, and now this Hang with me, it's important. If you want to flip over to the book of Acts, chapter 1, the first couple of verses, there's a hint in there. There's actually a hint. In the first book, O Theophilus, there's one hint right there, right? Written to the same guy, right? Is there a hint there? In the first book, Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Okay, so he's saying in part 1, of my series here. I wrote a book about Jesus, everything he did, everything that I found out that he taught. That's what that was. Until the day when he was taken up, till the day he ascended into heaven, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. It's almost the same introduction, you know, to Theophilus as we see in Luke. <clears throat> so who was this Luke? Well, first of all, let me tell you who he wasn't. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When you ask people who wrote the Gospels, you know what the most common answer is? All awake people everywhere will say the disciples. Almost before the disciples. Matthew the disciple, Mark the disciple, Luke the disciple, and John the disciple. Is that true? Is that accurate? Some of you are going, some of you are going like this, and some of you are going like this, which means you want to do both. <laughs> you won't want me to know if you're saying yes or no. No, it's not accurate. It wasn't. Only two of them were disciples. Only John and Matthew were part of the original 12. Mark and Luke were not. 
and Mark wasn't written by Mark. It was written by John. Confusing? Look up here. Before I lose you and you guys are going, it's a heretic. I, I, he's a heretic. I know Mark was written by Mark. I've studied at least enough to know it. John wasn't written just by John either. It was also written by Mark. Oh, so it was written by Mark and John. No. It was written by both, but not Mark it. Well, that's, that's impossible. You're, you don't make any sense. Look at Acts 12, 12, and it'll talk about this John Mark. Flip over to there. Acts 12, 12. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Okay, so he went by both. Sometimes he went by Mark. Sometimes he went by John. Sometimes he went by John Mark. How's that for confusing? So he's apparently a southern redneck. That's what I learned there. Two first names, John Mark. Other apocryphal gospels are written by Billy Bob, Mary Sue, Bobby Jean, and for that reason, they're not included in the canon. You can see these little, these little assumptions here, gang. You know, well, I suppose that they're all written by disciples. I mean, they seem like little things that, that aren't that big a deal, uh, but they're pretty easy to clear up with a little bit of effort. And gang, I think because we're living in a time of, the, of, of heightened biblical illiteracy. I mean, we're living in a time right now where we have, you know, most, the average Christian home, people got like seven Bibles on their shelves, but they don't know what's in it. A little bit of effort here <clears throat> can deepen your faith. Most people who don't believe the Bible have no trouble, this is fascinating to me, they have no trouble at all, you know, believing you know, maybe a university professor, maybe they've been raised in a Christian home, they go off to college, and, and some guy with a bunch of titles beyond his name says the Bible's not true, it's written by a bunch of men, and it's just written thousand years after any of the events happen. It's just, they tell you that, and you go, oh, okay. Well, why would you trust him without any kind of support for that, and then throw out God's word? Well, if you don't have a foundation, and you can't answer them, you're likely to do that. Sad, because I think it should be the other way around. I think you should, you should ask that professor to support what he's saying before you throw God out, right? Gang, the stakes are too high to trust your eternal destination to the herd. And, and it's, it's mind-blowing what I see happen to young people and the, and, the, and the statistics when they go off to college. And even raised in a Christian home, went to church all their life, went to college, and something like 70% of them fall away from the church, stop going to church, stop believing, kind of start believing things like all these religions, they all are God in a different form, they're all different roads, they all lead to heaven. What happened to their faith? Wasn't grounded. They had doubts. They weren't certain. And so what, again, is good about this book? What, what is good about this journey through Luke? If that's you or your kids, it's written for you. So this is going to give your kids a great foundation when they get older and they go off to college. And some university prof who says the Bible's not true, and you chase him down, and the only thing he has to back that up, he hasn't studied at all. He went to the University of Atheism and, and, the, and, and just everything anti-biblical. And you start realizing that answers to these professors are really pretty simple and right there for, for you to grasp. Now, I want you to not raise your hands, but just think about this. Simple question. I've already asked it a couple times. Isn't God's word 
worth some investigation? I mean, what do you think? Isn't it worth some effort? I mean, if it's really what it claims to be, if Jesus is who he really claims to be, isn't this worth some effort? Of course his word is. And here's the good news. Now I want you to follow what we're about to see in just a moment very closely because it's going to go fast. Good news is you don't have to delve that deep to find that most criticisms against the Bible are nothing more than smoke and mirrors. Take a look. People love to say the Bible is full of errors and contradictions, but the truth is most of them can be pretty easily resolved with a little common sense, honest investigation of the scripture and the application of a simple method we're about to talk about. So let's do this. Let's tackle the alleged errors issue. We'll do that by using a method I like to call a simple C. S. Spelling. That's right. Many of the so-called errors in the manuscript are simple variants in letters. Say you have one manuscript that was translated from Greek into Old English and another into American English. Well, the English translators might write down theater with the R-E ending, and the American team might write down theater with the E-R ending. Now, that's no error, my fellow thespians. It's a variant in spelling, so that's that for that one. On to the M. M is for mistranslation. This is when the original word might not have been translated to the new language perfectly or something along those lines. you got to realize that sometimes there's not a perfect word equivalent at the time of translation or that the translator simply had a slip of the pen or used a word that perhaps could be translated in different ways. Context and comparison solves this lickety split. For instance, Leviticus 11:13 through 19 says, And these you should regard as an abomination among birds. The eagle, the vulture, buzzard, and bat. Folks go nuts on this one. Bats aren't birds. Bats aren't birds. The Bible is wrong and can't be trusted. Come on. First of all, they didn't have the same animal classifications back then, and the original Hebrew word translated bird here is alf, or however you pronounce that. And although correctly translated bird in many places, it also has a broader meaning like having wings or winged creature, which would, of course, include bats. This is all settled pretty easily with a little looking and thinking, I'd say. Moving on to P for perspective. Sometimes the testimony of two people can seem contradictory, but when you pay close attention, it might not be that way at all. Quick example. Say there was a car parked in the middle of the street. There's a person on the right of the car and a person on the left. The person on the right says the car door is blue and there's a baby in the back, and the person on the other side says the car door is white and there are two babies. Now, how can this be? These ferocious liars can't be trusted. Now, wait a second there, Jimmy Conclusion Jumper. Fact is, the car could be painted white on one side and blue on the other, and if there are two babies in there is one, right? So both are actually illuminating the fullness of the scene. Remember, the guy on the right didn't say there was only one baby, he just mentioned one. You gotta pay attention to the language and perspective people. Sometimes the whole truth is in the details, you follow? L. Literal versus figurative. It's pretty clear that the Bible contains different writing styles like poetry and narrative and uses different parts of speech like similes, metaphors, and analogies pretty much like we still do today. So if we really want to interpret correctly, it's our job to realize and understand the difference. How, you ask? Great question. By looking at the immediate context using our noggin and comparing it with the rest of scripture. That way we understand when Jesus says in John 10:7 that he is the door, he doesn't mean he's a wooden rectangle that swings on hinges. Need I say more? Finally, C for context. This is the biggie, folks. I'd say most alleged error issues arise when people don't acknowledge the proper context of the verse, they quote only part of it or purposefully misuse it. They might say John 3.16 says, for God so loved, but they say Deuteronomy 16.22 says, the Lord your God hates. Now, which is it? Does he love or does he hate? Well, you know, this is silly because the context of John 3.16 is about God's love for people and the Deut verse is talking about his hate for pillars. You know, if you hack, twist, and misquote everything, you can pretty much make it say whatever you want and that's not really searching for truth. So, there you have it. With a little effort, honest investigation, and application of the simple C method, the idea that the authority or inerrancy of the Bible is in any way diminished due to errors has been debunked. Adios. All right, you guys get that? See, simple. Let's pray. No, there's more than that. We're going to use some simple conclusion methods throughout this study, but it's very, very important that you guys are willing to put effort in. Now, we also know that Luke was a slow starter. We know that Luke started out as a skeptic. 
We know that Luke was highly educated, and in that culture, only about 5 or 10% of the people could be educated as much as he was. We also know that he was all in. Once he stopped doubting and started trusting, he was all in. Started out as a skeptic, but later he's all in. Sort of like an ancient day C.S. Lewis. Heard of C.S. Lewis? Well, how many of you have heard of Lee Strobel? Anybody ever read any of Lee Strobel's books? I mean, he's kind of like an ancient day Lee Strobel or C.S. Lewis. Lee Strobel was a, <clears throat> an editor and journalist in the Chicago Sun Tribune, I believe it was, and agnostic, atheist. But he had somebody from Willow Creek that kept trying to get a hold of him, kept trying to witness to him. And that guy was bugging Lee Strobel so bad, he decided to investigate, just like Luke, just like Theophilus, we'll find out in a moment, the, uh, the, the things he'd heard about Christianity, everything he could get his hands on to get this friend to stop bugging him because he's an investigative reporter. Thought, well, who can do it better than me? But as he began to delve deeper into the things of the Lord, guess what? He got saved. He came to know the Lord because he thought, these, these can't be debunked. It's got to be true. So in ancient day, Lee Strobel is exactly what Luke was. <clears throat> we also know that Luke got fired up. He started out as a doubter, and that's okay, but he got fired up. How do we know this? How do we make statements like this? Write this down, but don't go there. 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is probably at one of the lowest points in his ministry, and he gets to a point where, I mean, see if you've ever thought about Paul this way, a giant in the faith, probably the greatest Christian. You know, Jesus is obviously, Christian means little Christ. Obviously, you got Jesus in a league all his own, but then you got Paul who many refer to as the greatest Christian ever. So you would think that he'd just have throngs following him all the time, right? But there were many times in Paul's ministry where he was persona non grata. People were scared to be around Paul because people wanted to put Paul to death. People wanted to persecute him. And in 2 Timothy, he talks about this, and he's writing Timothy. And he says, everybody's deserted me. Things were getting very, very bad. He's in prison, and nobody's even visiting him. And he talks about people have scattered to Ephesus. People have scattered to Cyprus. People are just gone. I'm all alone except for Luke. So how do I know his faith is dynamic now? Because when you know that hanging out and talking about the gospel is almost certainly going to get you killed and you don't budge, when everybody you trust and everybody who's had boldness around you and courage, all of a sudden they're getting weak at the knees and they bolt and they run, and you stay, then you must believe, right? And you don't just believe, you've got a strong faith. So Luke has gone from agnostic to an incredibly bold faith, stronger than any of Paul's friends. He didn't go. As persecution increased, his faith increased as well. If this isn't enough for you, Pastor Mark Driscoll pointed out that all the early church fathers in the second and third century, Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, all of them agreed that Luke wrote this book. <clears throat> and I believe he wrote it. I believe he wrote it around 62 A.D., and that's important. I believe he wrote the book of Acts around 63 A.D. That's the sequel to the book of Luke. So he wrote this for probably took him a couple of years, probably finished it around 62 A.D., and then he started on the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a little bit different because he doesn't just interview people about the church. The church is just being born, just starting. He actually travels with Paul and sees these things firsthand. <clears throat> Why is this important that you know the date? Because what's the date that Jesus died and rose? Around what time did that happen? It's not a trick question. 30 to, oh, that's cute. You guys are raising your hands in the back. I'm not going to call on you. 
because you guys know that. Joe, I know you know it. Kenny, I know you know it. 30 to 33, 33 to 36, right in there, is when Jesus died. So how long has it been? Math majors? It's been about 30 years. So what's happening? What's starting to happen? I was hoping for more participation. I kept the questions easy. What, start, what happens when you're, say, 15 at the youngest, maybe 20, when all this happens as a disciple and an eyewitness, and it's 30 years later? 20 plus 30. They're getting older, right? They're also being persecuted. Several of them have died. James is dead at this time. Stephen's dead. A lot of, a lot of them have been martyred. So the eyewitness group is thinning out. The window of opportunity to write an, an account with all these eyewitnesses, that window's closing. That's what's happening. Luke has taken this historical strategic opportunity to do this investigation and write the books of the Bible. An opportunity that's never going to be there again. That's what makes it different than the other Gospels. <clears throat> what else do we know about Luke? He wasn't a preacher. He wasn't a church planter. He wasn't an original disciple. He wasn't an evangelist. He wasn't an original uh, a religious leader. He wasn't even a Jew. Now, it's not a prejudice statement, but I'm glad that he wasn't because he's one of the few in the whole Bible that is a, a Gentile author. So that helps us. Most of us are, are, are non-Jewish. A couple of you might be Jewish, but for the non-Jewish in the group, he was a Gentile. What's a Gentile? Anyone else that's except Jews. What else do we know about him? What did he do for a living? Anybody know? Why are we calling this series Rx? prescriptions for abundant living? What do you think? I'll give you a hint, the doctor is in. Luke was a doctor. Luke was a physician. That's a leap. Where do you get that? Colossians 4, write it down. Colossians 4, 14 to be exact. Says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Luke, the beloved physician. He was a medical doctor. That's nice. I'll log that away, Pastor. Why do I care? Help me. Why do I care? Well, I know some of you are wondering, what's the role of science and medicine in the Christian faith? They're mutually exclusive? No, not at all. Not at all. But I think what's good about this is that sometimes Christians get a little bit goofy when it comes to healing and the medical world. <clears throat> in fact, probably most of us have read stories about maybe parents in the news who wouldn't take their kids to the hospital or to the doctor, right? Because God will heal them, and I've been praying, and I've seen tragic stories and read about tragic stories where children die because they sat there and said, well, I was begging God and God heals and we're not, well, God heals and sometimes God doesn't, right? You know, it's, it's amazing to me. I'll have people that, I have talked to people that said, I don't want to do this because I believe God's going to heal and, you know, Jesus did all kinds of miracles in Luke and the church, which is filled with miracles and healings in the book of Acts, forgetting, overlooking a pretty critical point that both those books were written by a doctor, by a doctor who probably traveled with Paul. Paul went through kind of a lot of medical problems, didn't he? You know, when people beat you to death half a dozen times, you have issues physically. But isn't it, isn't it neat how God in his sovereignty put a physician with Paul? Well, I don't think so, Pastor, because Paul could have just healed himself. He healed everybody else. Yeah, but did Paul always heal himself? Didn't Paul have some kind of issue that he couldn't heal? Did you know that Paul prayed about something that bothered him probably physically so much and so much anguish that the Bible says he didn't take no for an answer three times? 
He begged God, heal me of this thorn in my side. That's all we know about it. A lot of scholars think it might have been his eyesight damaged by what happened on the road to Damascus. And then it was a problem. He had to be led around. That's why I believe it was his eyesight. That's why he wrote, sometimes he wrote with such big letters because he could barely see. And, and it made his ministry tough. It might not have been his eyesight. I think it was. But whatever it was, it bothered him so much that he asked God to heal him. God said no. And somewhere down the line, he asked him again because it bothered him. And God said no. And somewhere down the road, it bothered him so much, he asked a third time before finally giving up. And God did answer him. And God said, I'm putting it there so that you'll remain humble. I'm putting it there so you know you have to rely on me. This isn't you. This is us together. You're not great enough to do this ministry. You get to do this ministry. I've chosen you. <clears throat> so he didn't heal him. So doctors and the medical, you know, it's, the doctor's point was not that you don't need a doctor. The doctor's point is that Jesus is a great physician, and sometimes he does miraculously heal. I've seen God do that. Sometimes he chooses to use the medical doctors to heal. <clears throat> so Luke was a man who studied medicine and science and was formally educated. <clears throat> I think that's what Christians need to do. That's what believers need to do. Study the sciences. Study medicine. I married a doctor. Hasn't scared her off of Christianity. And you use general revelation and common grace and the mind that God gave you and all of that for the good of the faith. That's what Luke did. That's why we can really relate, especially in our culture, to Luke. All right, next question I said we were going to answer is, who's the audience? Primary and secondary. Verse 3 of chapter 1 of Luke. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So who is Theophilus? Who is this guy? Well, the short, short version is that he was probably a wealthy Roman official, perhaps even a governor. The more important, longer story that I want you guys to get <clears throat> is that he is most likely the financer of two of the most important books that we have in the whole Bible. Do you ever think about it that way? In fact, there are some, some we go, wow, so Luke was one of a high pollutant, fancy, rich doctor, huh? <clears throat> no. Doctors weren't rich back then. In fact, in the Roman world, do you know what doctors mostly were? Slaves. Doctors were slaves. Sometimes they weren't paid at all. So some scholars believe that Luke was probably a slave of Theophilus, a Roman governor, and that as Luke became a Christian, that he witnessed to Theophilus. And Theophilus was really beginning to believe and maybe Theophilus was a baby Christian, but Theophilus coming, Theophilus didn't grow up, you know, reading in the scriptures about the coming Messiah. He didn't grow up going to the temple. He didn't know any of this stuff. He, he didn't grow up in a Christian home. So he came from zero knowledge of this, but was really believing it, and the Holy Spirit was working on his heart. So what would you do if you came from zero background? You'd try to study this stuff, right? So what's really cool about this is he financed Luke to go out and answer the questions. Luke, before it's too late, go. I'll pay for you. Take a year off. Take two years off. Take three years off. Go talk to the eyewitnesses while they're still alive and, and put all this together and write an account. How do I know he, he did that? Because he said, I'm writing this account for you. Now, Theophilus means beloved of God. 
So, I mean, there are some, some commentators that I read that thought, well, maybe this is written to a group that's being tormented, so it's code for a whole bunch of people that are beloved by God, or, or everyone. Well, it's certainly useful for everyone, but I don't think it's code because of this term, most excellent Theophilus. Luke used that about four times in Acts, this, this term, most excellent, and every single time that he used it without exception, it was about a Roman official. So why would he decide to use it here in Luke about a whole group or some code thing, especially when he puts the name of a Roman official down there? So it's Theophilus that it was written to. So he's got this baby Christian, Theophilus, wealthy, prominent, affluent, significant man, becomes a Christian. And what he's going through probably is what some of you might be going through. He gets all fired up the first day that he gets saved. We had about 44 people make decisions for Christ on Easter. And there's a parable of the sowers in one of the Gospels that talks about how when people come to faith, the soil is their hearts, and, and Jesus is the farmer, and he'll scatter seed. And, you know, if it's on a good heart, it's on good soil, then it'll spring up and it'll bear fruit. But there's different kinds of soil, right? There's rocky soil, and it might just kind of bounce off there, and there's, there's soil in between the cracks on a, on a pavement, and it might spring up and look good, but it'll just get choked out by this. You know that story? And so you've got this different kind of soil, but some people become a believer. Some of the soil is when, when, when you spring up and then the weeds come in and, and choke it out. Let's talk about the cares of the world and doubts and things like that. So a lot of people, when they become a Christian, I'm just going to be real blunt, they'll say, did I just make an emotional decision? Maybe some of you thought that. I mean, I really felt God, but here it is weeks later. I wonder if that was just an emotional decision. Is it really true? Did anything really happen to me? I still struggle with sins. I still have thoughts. Maybe I'm no different. Is this really true? Is Jesus really who he said he was? Did he do what I've heard that he did? Are miracles true? And you, and you wrestle with, with doubts. I mean, did he cast out demons? Are there even demons? And there's a group that said he had one Chick-fil-A lunch and he fed 20,000 people with it. Is that true? Could that happen? Somebody said he walked on water, really? Walked on water? Uh, supposed to be hundreds of witnesses when he ascended into heaven. Ascended, I mean, he floated up right in front of them to heaven? I want to ask some people about that because that's, that's tough for me to believe, an educated man like me. So he wants to make an intelligent decision. Can't blame him. Back then, it could have cost him his income, definitely his job and income, probably his prominence and maybe even his life. So he wants to answer these questions. Do I really believe in Jesus? Do I love Jesus? Do I belong to him? Do I want to go public? Do I want to put Christian on my Facebook page and click Christian? You know, do I want to write about him in my blog? You know, if I go on Oprah someday, do I want to identify with Jesus? Do I want to say he's the only way? I know that's not popular. There's a lot at stake. So he contracts out, hires, funds, supports Luke, a fellow Gentile, not a Jew looking for the Messiah, but a fellow Gentile to go and talk to these witnesses and find out if it's all true. Luke, I need you to go find the truth. Go get the facts. So here's what's amazing. Very, very expensive. It's a classic ancient way that someone who had been funded 
you know, to do something in, in that time would address somebody who did this most excellent. So you got this relationship between these two. <clears throat> so here's what you're supposed to understand. Theophilus paid for two books of the Bible to get written. He would have allowed Luke to take years off work. I think Luke probably was set free if he was a slave. He gave him his freedom. Luke was able to make money as a doctor. Luke probably kicked in some of his own money. And you go and you start this eyewitness three or four year investigation. So put this in perspective. 2,000 years later, we have Luke and Acts because of a baby Christian, wealthy, prominent Gentile who was willing to put his money where his mouth is. And if not, we don't have Luke and we don't have Acts. Luke is the longest book of the New Testament. We don't have a large chunk taken together. It's a big chunk of the New Testament. We don't have that if it isn't for this guy. So it's and in his generosity. So it's pretty huge. <clears throat> Number three, how was it written? <clears throat> we already know that Luke wasn't with Jesus as one of the twelve. And we kind of went over this, but I reiterate it. He sought out eyewitnesses. Here's what he just said. There are already books about this. There's already people that, that wrote from a perspective of being there. And ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So not only are there written accounts, but there's still eyewitnesses. It's been about 30 years, like I said. So I'm going to go back, and I'm going to talk to some people about what really happened. And if you read Luke, and this might depress some of you. Some of you might hear this and go, I don't really like to know that. But about 60% of Mark is quoted verbatim in Luke. Does that bother you? Some might, no, that doesn't bother me. I'll just skip Mark now because I'll read Luke and knock them both out. Well, I didn't really want you to think of it that way. <clears throat> I wanted you to think of it this way. That's one of the eyewitnesses that Luke talked to, John Mark. And he, and he said, this stuff is verifiable, so I'm going to take this. I'm not going to try and write something different. But he would literally go to people like Mark and other people that were there, and he'd say, okay, here's the first one. Levitated up into heaven. That's a tough one. Give me a break. Who saw it? Who's there? I'm not, bring me my chariot. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to talk to them. There's supposed to be 500 witnesses. Two, 300 of them must still be alive. I want to ask them, did you really see Jesus float up? Yes. Yes or no? Did you see that? They're still alive. Then he goes to Jerusalem and says, you know, I heard on, you know, he probably tried to trick them. I heard that on the temple steps during a teaching about Noah and the flood that Jesus ascended up into the heavens riding a white stallion. Is that true? Uh, no, it was on a mountain to the east. Oof. Tried to get you, tried to trick you with that one. But in all seriousness, I did hear that Jesus turned all the wine at a funeral to water. Is that one true? Uh, no, it was a wedding and he turned water to wine. Oh, you got, I mean, so he's looking at this and he's trying to probably see if he can trick him and get him to admit or get to the facts in an eyewitness account. So you got a doubter who's compiled, who has researched, and who has interviewed eyewitnesses. And somewhere in the middle of all that, I believe Luke's heart changed. I don't know if Luke started out on this journey to write this as a believer. Or if he got halfway through this thing and just said, I believe it myself. But I know why he wrote it. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. <clears throat> I want to tell you what's right, Theophilus. 
so that you may be certain of it. So what's the big deal, Pastor Rob? How's this any good for us? Well, Luke has the potential. This journey we're about to undertake has the potential to make a powerful transformation in your life. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, then by studying his teachings and becoming familiar with who he is, we have this unbelievable potential, opportunity to make sense of our existence. Isn't that the basic question? Isn't that the basic question that the world wrestles with? Why am I here? I mean, some of you, if you've been with me for a while, follow my ministry, we did a man on the street. There's an interview done years and years ago, but I believe if you did it today, it'd be even worse. And you ask people, what's my purpose in life? I mean, I think when that interview was done, it's, it's over a decade old, there was one person out of about 50 that, that knew they had any kind of purpose in life. They got that right. Most people said, my purpose in life is to make a lot of money and be happy. That was the number one answer, the Vulcan answer from Star Trek, live long and prosper. That's what most people thought. So they're getting their purpose in life from Star Trek rather than anything verifiable, anything true. But if you grab a hold of this and you realize by supporting it and by eyewitness accounts that Jesus is exactly who he said, it can strengthen your faith. A lot of you aren't doing what God called you to do. When Jesus did ascend up into heaven, he said, go out and make disciples. Be my witnesses, right? And when I ask people why they're not doing that, the most common answer that I'll get is, I don't know enough, right? I'm scared. I'm afraid I'll start talking to my friends or I'm afraid I'll start you know, answering that university professor and he'll just make mincemeat out of me. But really, it's not that hard. And hopefully, if you stick with us in this study, your faith will grow and your doubts will be answered and you'll be strengthened. So we have this unbelievable opportunity to make sense of our existence. That's huge. This incredible opportunity to answer troubling questions or doubts if you've got them. And this incredible opportunity for loved ones and friends who have doubts, for you to finally be able to sit down intelligently, or if not, invite them to the series, at least. <clears throat> and when do these questions come up? You know, would you say that we live in a noisy culture? I mean, not right now. But did you know that we live in a culture right now where it seems like people are afraid to be alone with their thoughts? Have you noticed that? I mean, for five seconds. I mean, some people can't go to the bathroom without their cell phone. Now, I got to check things in there. Really? In there? I got to have a newspaper. I got to have a book. I can't be alone. What, what's going to happen when you're alone if you don't have anything to do? If you're just on a walk, if you're just out in the woods, you didn't bring your phone, you just, what's, what's, what are you afraid of? What do you think our culture is so afraid of? Why do we have to be busy? Why do we have to be doing five things at once? Why can't we just sit still? Well, the Bible says if you're seeking after God, there's something you need to do to find him. <clears throat> Does he say, multitask and you will know that I am God? The Bible says, be still and you will know. Be still and you will know. So those nagging questions that you have when you're still and you don't have a cell phone to play with and you don't get to go on Facebook and all that, God knows that you're going to sit there and go, you know what, there's got to be a creator. Just look around and God will begin to invade and you're either going to be terrified of your life or you're going to have to answer questions. Again, that's what I hope that this series does for you. The, resorts, the, the rewards could be great. 
And we live in a pretty dark world that's getting worse. Anybody disagree with that? It's getting worse. I don't think it's getting better. Maybe some of you don't believe that. I read recently that we throw away more food in our country. Just as one example, I could give you a million. That we could, we could probably feed Russia, starving people there, Britain, and Japan, just with the stuff we throw away. Why would we do that? We, we could probably solve the world's hunger problem just with the grain that we have stored up as a country. So why don't we just do that? Seems pretty easy, right? You know, I know we're trying to find cures for cancers and things like that, but did you know that we can cure most of the diseases that are out there right now? We can cure them. Some of them, it's so simple. You know how many millions are dying in Africa and we could cure them? So why don't we? It's not profitable. It's not profitable. It has something to do with money. So the third world's starving. Infants are dying of hunger. Millions a year, you know millions, millions die in Africa of diarrhea. They die of that. We have stuff off the shelf that'll cure that. We could easily cure that. Why don't we? It's not profitable. So it's a broken world that we live in, right? It's a broken world. And you don't need me and you don't need the Bible to tell you that. <clears throat> Again, turn on, turn, on, turn on Oprah. Listen to she, Oprah knows it. CNN knows it. MSNBC knows it. Talk show, everybody knows it. It's not a secret. We know the world is broken. So how do we get some answers? And I mean good answers. Not, we need better education. Is that an answer for life and eternity? No. Who spends more money than any other nation on earth on education? Right now. Guess. More than one of you guess. Who spends more than any other nation in the world? <coughs> we do, by far. Where do our kids rank in math? Science. Almost dead last, and, all that, and we spend more. So people keep saying, spend more on education. That's the answer. Really, we already spend the most, and we're like the worst. So I'm just saying that's probably not it. Unless we want to just keep on making the same mistake, that's probably not it. We need more personal enterprise. I don't know. We saw the whole thing pretty much collapse on greed about five years ago, so that's probably not it. We can go take another run at it, but I, I think it's going to, and the same way, we need to realize that all roads lead to heaven and just, okay, you can try that. We need tolerance. We need newer technology. Those things haven't fixed anything. They haven't. Brought us the iPhone 5. Now we've got the world of Warcraft too, so we've got a few things going. That's about it. So it's got this chance to be powerful because it can make sense out of our existence. But it's also going to be problematic, and I'll close with this. The study of this book is going to be problematic. For some of you, you're not going to like it for one very big thing that's hugely unpopular today. And Luke is going to do this throughout the book. 
Luke is going to make absolute truth claims. And I'm kind of end with this one old story. Matt Chandler shared this one time, but it's actually, some of you have probably heard it before. <clears throat> and if you struggle with absolute truth claims, it's because in our culture and especially at universities, when you go to school, they're going to tell you that you can't know absolute truth and there's no such thing as absolute truth or absolute statements like that, which is using an absolute truth statement to say that there is no absolute truth. But never mind that. One of the most famous parables that they will say, if you struggle with absolute truth, you're going to struggle with Luke. And one of the most famous parables that secular people will use to say there's no absolute truth is as follows. It is the story of the elephant. It goes like this. A group of blind men were asked to describe an elephant. They're blind. There's about four of them. The first one grabbed the trunk and said, an elephant's like a snake. Yeah, it's just like a snake with two holes on the end. It's really weird. Okay? So he's holding the trunk and he's, he just thinks it's a snake. The other one was feeling the leg and going, it's nothing like a snake. He's feeling the leg and he's saying, it's more like, more like a tree. An elephant is like a tree. The other one on the other side is feeling the side of the elephant. He's going, what are you guys, what are you, blind? This is a, I mean, obviously blind, but this is a, an elephant is like a wall. An elephant is like a wall. It's nothing like what you guys are saying. And the other guy's got the worst part. He's got the tail at the end. And he's going, you know, it's, it's stringy and kind of humid and, and gross. And, you know, so an elephant's, I don't, I don't know what he would have said on that. But he's going, but it's nothing like a snake or a wall or anything like that. This is the parable. Here's the point. The point of the parable is to show how each of the religions, and if they share this with you in college, <clears throat> although somewhat correct, is in the end wrong that anyone who would steadfastly say an elephant is like a snake and it has to be end of discussion is obviously wrong because we know that an elephant isn't like a snake. Now, I have a lot of problems with that, and you probably do too. Who knows that an elephant's not like a snake? The one that can see the elephant, right? And what's he basing that on? Absolute truth of the elephant that he's seeing. But these guys can't see that, so they're only seeing a picture of it. <clears throat> and if this guy goes on and on, an elephant is like a snake, I don't care what anybody else says, I don't care what anybody else thinks, it's like a snake. That guy's arrogant, just like anybody who says, my religion is the way, I don't care what anybody else thinks, that guy's arrogant. If you're a skeptic, one of the reasons I have a problem with it, I'm not gonna even going to use this, one of the reasons I have a problem with this is I'm a believer. Let's not use that one, though. Let's use another one here. I have problems with this idea because it's intellectually inconsistent and it uses smoke and mirrors to pretend it's more tolerant than the rest. The only way the parable of the elephant and the blind man makes any sense is if the narrator of the story sees the whole elephant, right? Here's what I'm saying. The moment you claim that ultimate reality is unknowable, you've just made a claim based on ultimate reality, based on absolute truth, haven't you? I see three nods and I see some of your pupils going like that and that kind of confusion going out there. You can't know that Christ is the only way. 
You absolutely, positively can't know that. What is that? What have I just done? I've made an absolute, positive, no-frills claim to refute your absolute, positive, no-frills claim. It's circular reasoning. It doesn't work. And I think it works on kids in college because they're afraid to argue. So, man, I love Luke Gang. I hope that you invite your, your lost friends especially. I want Impact Church to grow by people who don't know Jesus coming and, and discovering Jesus here at Impact Church. Invite them, especially for this journey. Almost every single week we're going to be touching on salvation and why Jesus came and what he did. Now here's your homework. Here's what you can do. Let me see those readers again. Where are you? People who like to read? All right. The rest of you have to join them. By the way, if you don't like to read, you can go onto a little website called audible.com and you can download the Bible and listen to it. But here's what I want you to do. It takes the average reader, I did all this for you, so you don't have to do it yourself. It takes the average reader about two hours, that's it, to read at, at the pace of an average reader through Luke. That's not much of a commitment, is it? <clears throat> and so let's say you read 15 or 20 minutes a day then you can get through the whole Gospel of Luke in a week. So what do you think I'm asking? I would say as we're just starting out to read this week through the Gospel of Luke so that you have that foundation, so that you're ready before we go over each chapter. You've already read it, and I'd love for you guys to do this in your small groups. In fact, my suggestion is actually that you do this every quarter as we study this book. So you read through the Gospel of Luke, Man, it'd be great if you did it every week. Once a quarter, you read through this, and that'll make this journey that much better for you. All right, now, I know this was a little bit scholastic-like, but it's very important that we start out this week. Next week, we'll start getting into the stories and everything that's fascinating about this gospel. Would you bow your heads? Father, thank you so much for this book, Lord. Thank you for, that it's written from the perspective, Lord, of somebody like us that wasn't there. God, but had to rely on faith and things unseen, Lord. And you say in your word that without faith, it's impossible to please you, Lord. And I pray that you'd strengthen the faith of those at, at Impact Church, Lord. I pray we'd be a house of prayer, and I pray that we would be a, a house of great faith, Lord, and we'd be pleasing unto you. I pray that we'd be an invite culture, Lord, that we would invite people to come here and hear about this gospel and people that are coming from a perspective that maybe... Theophilus was coming from or Luke was coming from that they might meet you and encounter you here at Impact Church and Lord I pray that we would as we're getting ready to give back to you and all the good that you've given us Lord I pray that we would be like Theophilus that we'd look ahead Father for what not only that you're doing today at Impact Church but what you're going to do years from now and we'll give generously for this mission that will impact others years to come I pray in Jesus name Amen thanks for worshiping with us see you next week